Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. Uh, we've got a gruesome one today uh, for a change. Brian Fogel, the producer of The Dissident, a uh, documentary about Jamal Khashoggi's life, his admirable life, and uh, grisly death. Uh, We'll uh, provide some insight into uh, why Mohammed bin Salman ordered uh, the murder of this this brilliant, principled, and courageous journalist. I don't know if you'll enjoy this conversation, but it's uh, an important one, I think. Uh, The Saudis are bitter enemies of Iran, and I suppose the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But this is a case where the enemy of my enemy is a brutal, uh, sadistic dictator. (laughs) Um, Now, uh, before we go to the interview, I just want to remind you all that I'll be on a 15-city tour starting September 18th in North Haven, Mass. And uh, you can check alfranken.com for all the dates and and, uh, to get tickets. I hope to see you uh, somewhere around the country there. We're going... um, pretty much all over the place. So uh, now uh, for my conversation with uh, Brian Fogel, a harrowing one uh, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup (laughs) <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. I wouldn't say I enjoyed 
uh, the documentary. It was kind of harrowing, but a lot of people do enjoy that kind of thing. I mean, um, it's it's really about Khashoggi's journey from being a uh, he was a, a member, uh, sort of of the it, he was an insider with the Saudi family, right? The royal family. Well, his his last name is uh, you know Khashoggi, Khashoggi, uh, and uh, and the roots of the family was from Turkey, and so. Uh, sadly, as uh, Jamal was being murdered, his killers were essentially taunting him that he was a mutt, that he actually wasn't Saudi. But uh, okay. but his family uh, certainly uh, was prominent in uh, in the kingdom for for a long time, and he was considered uh, an insider. He did work uh, for the royal family uh, for the majority of his career essentially as a journalist liaison um, where he would help kind of navigate uh, Saudi policy and help, um, you know, the kingdom in, you know, its, its goals abroad. And then uh, a lot of that also was his writing and his journalism, uh, which until Mohammed bin Salman, he essentially had kind of the freedom to critique uh, and, you know, maybe not uh, press freedom like we think we have in the United States or in most of Western Europe, but he did have the ability to say, hey, I, you know, I don't quite sure if this policy is, is good for our country or uh, so on and so forth. But he was kind of an insider. In other words, um, as a journalist, he had access. And until Ben Salman, uh, the, the crown print, now the crown prince, took uh really took power is his father named him crown prince is that it yes i mean look he was he was an insider in that he really knew how uh the royal family worked uh he knew uh you could argue that he knew the the majority of the you know of the major you know the brothers and it's a big family it's a big family yeah the prince is huge family the yeah. prince is and those in power, you know, there's multiple, multiple photographs of, of Jamal, um, whether that's Jamal sitting alongside of Obama or whether that's, you know, Jamal with Mohammed bin Salman uh, or King Salman uh, or his predecessor. I want people to understand, I want our listeners to understand what a sacrifice he was making. And he was making it because when bin Salman came in, People thought he was a reformer. I remember he did something so women could drive, right? And everyone was very excited about that. We have a reformer there. But that wasn't the case, right? And and uh, that eventually is what forced Khashoggi's decision to leave and go to the United States. But he left a family behind. Is that right? Well, he had, um, you know, his children were, were grown. You know, he had, uh, you know, four children, two sons, two daughters. One son was living in the kingdom, and the other three at the time of his murder were living in the United oh, States. At least his two daughters were. Uh, you know, but he left his wife, and he and his wife, uh, you know, according to his friends and those that I spoke to, were, you know, that they had a very good marriage. He was close to his wife. And when he went into self exile, essentially she was brought in by Saudi, you know, whatever you want to call it, secret police. And basically, 
uh, interrogated and told that she was going to call her husband and demand a divorce because, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia, only the, only the man can grant a woman a divorce. Now, and this is a reformer. Okay, this has been Solomon. So he wasn't a reformer, as it turns out. And that's why, when does Ben uh, Salman uh, become the crown prince and pretty much the de facto ruler of the country? What year is He that? was appointed crown prince on the 21st of June, 2017. Oh, wow. So this happened fast. And, yeah. and Kashoggi starts to write critical stuff and then decides, I better get out of here at a certain point. Comes to uh, Washington, becomes a uh, op-ed writer for the Washington Post and is writing critical stuff about the Saudi government. Well, a little, well, a little more complicated than that. He had, um, MBS becomes crown prince. And as you said, Al, I mean, here is this guy who's being touted around the world. You might have remembered his big tour of the United States. I believe this was in uh, March or April of 2018, where he went and met with Jeff Bezos and Obama and Larry Ellison and Bill Gates and uh, and former President Bush and Elon Musk. He just Musk needed to and, talk to billionaires, basically. Yeah. yeah. And, and he did a big billionaire tour of the United States. Because <laughs> um, he only really wants to talk to billionaires being, how much is he worth, <laughs> Ben Salman? My guess uh, would be that he's a trillionaire. Um, okay. All because, right. Because that's a thousand billion. That, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, my, my guess is that uh, you know Jeff Bezos, uh, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, uh, Larry Ellison, Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, maybe if you combine them all together, uh, you get MBS. But who really knows? Because the family, the House of Saud, and and he essentially controls the wealth of that entire kingdom, and also you know they're minting money at the oil pump and also the liquidity they have oil investments wait a minute that's a big part of the story i didn't realize that the saudis have oil you know uh apparently they have a little bit uh he was going to be a reformer turns out not to be a reformer uh khashoggi starts writing critically uh he starts to get the sense that uh he might be put in prison goes to the United States, writes for the Washington Post, and in the Washington Post, he's writing critically of, of the Saudis government. He is in extreme disfavor. And in your movie, you kind of focus also on a number of other dissidents. Uh, one in Toronto, was he? That's uh, in Montreal, Omar Abdulaziz. This uh, young man feels that, uh, that any minute he could be killed by, by Saudi government. This is uh, incredibly disturbing, and obviously it, uh, it goes to the, the murder of Khashoggi. Now, I want to ask you about that, and this is, it's very graphic, uh, the film, in terms of you have audio that was from the Turkish uh, embassy. He was killed, I mean, the Saudi embassy in, uh, in Istanbul, was it? That's correct. Yeah, and he goes in. He, he has been divorced. He has a fiance who's Turkish, and he needs to get some document, right, from the Saudis. Basically, he's got to get a, um, even though he was divorced under Turkish law, if a man's been married, uh, he needs to prove that he's divorced 
to be remarried. So he was seeking uh, paperwork, uh, you know, from from Saudi Arabia to prove uh, that he was uh, in fact divorced, so that he could uh, marry Hatija. So he goes there, and she waits outside, and he goes in, and we have the video of him going in, and he doesn't emerge. Correct. The the part of this story that my listeners probably know is this part, which is he's murdered. There's taping of this, right? Or at least the, the transcript. And he's basically saying, you're going to kill me. Yeah. In the film, uh, I, I worked uh, with uh, the Republic of Turkey, their investigators and intelligence, and ultimately, you know, the blessing of the president's office. And um, they good man, good man, Erdogan. (laughs) Good man. Uh, You can't say anything bad about him. He helped your film, so don't say anything bad about Erdogan. Exactly. exactly. I'll I'll do that in the intro and then at at the end. Yeah. Yeah, you can do that (laughs) when you're gone. I'll just I'll just just bite my tongue. Yeah. Um, Okay. But yeah, uh, they uh, uh, the Turks over you know over a year time cooperated and helped and participated in loud and allowed interviews and uh uh and access that you know even right now in this film i mean not cnn not bbc no news agency in the world got that sort of evidence and access outside of perhaps you know intelligence agencies like the cia or or mi6 but i was able to obtain the full transcript uh, no, it was a transcript murder. that's right we were offered the audio but um declined it um because it just felt gratuitous wow uh that's interesting that's interesting so you've listened to the audio i i did not um about a year into it around the time that i received the transcript which was right on the one-year anniversary of jamal's murder when jeff bezos came to istanbul with fred ryan uh, many of jamal's friends uh, to speak they had offered me to listen to the audio, pull some segments from the audio and the transcript. And at that point, you know, I'd been deeply involved in the story for a year. I just, I didn't, I didn't need to uh, hear that. That's an interesting choice for a filmmaker because of course, um, people who like that kind of thing, they like that kind of thing. But that was uh, an admirable choice you made. Well, well, the choice really became at that point. Um, I had been, you know, working for uh, for a year uh, with Hatija Jengas, his fiance Omar, uh, you know, the Saudi descent in Montreal, and you know, in a circle of of Jamal's very close friends. And mm-hmm. so, so the right. idea for me that I would put that audio into the film, regardless of the, of the gratuitous nature of it, but that these people yes. that loved him and cared for him would then uh, have to hear that. Um, obviously, we, we, we know what happened. There's yep. been multiple intelligence reports and, and in dealing with the UN, uh, the United Nations Special Repertoire. And That's Agnes Calamard, is that her Agnes her name? Calamard. She's now the, uh, she's just been named the head of, uh, of Amnesty International. And, and she has accused the, uh, the Saudis of threatening her. That Caitlin. is correct. There was mm-hmm. a story in The Guardian just, just a week ago. And that's the Saudi Arabia's Human Rights Commission threatened her, and she was doing the investigation. 
uh, for the UN. And she's concluded that Ben Salman ordered this. Am I right? That is correct. And Joe Biden released the CIA's intelligence findings, and the CIA concluded the same thing, that, that it was essentially impossible that a murder of this nature that was orchestrated using state resources, private jets owned by the crown prince, crown prince's security detail, on and on and on, could have ever happened uh, without the direct consent and involvement of, of the crown prince. Let, let's talk about exactly what happened inside that embassy. Uh, what's on the transcript? Why don't you run that down? I'll let you do that. Well, you know, Jamal, uh, you know, enters uh, enters the consulate. This was October second, twenty eighteen. This was his actually his third trip in total to a consulate to try to get these uh, marriage papers. the The first time he went, he went in Washington D.C. As I mentioned, he was uh, having uh, or owned a, a home there was splitting his time between Washington and Istanbul. And he goes in and meets with the crown prince's brother, who at the time was the ambassador to the United States uh, from Saudi Arabia. He's greeted warmly and doesn't feel like there's any problems. And he's told, you know, uh, we'll help you with this, Jamal, no problem. But uh, you need to go to Istanbul to get this done. So he goes to Istanbul, you know, to see Hatija. He walks into the consulate there. They had already been expecting him. And uh, again, they tell him, hey, no, no problem, uh, but can you come back in a week? We need time to get the paperwork ready. So again, Jamal leaves the, the consulate believing that, that nothing's wrong and comes back October 2nd of, of 2018 to pick up the paperwork. And on that day, there was essentially a, a 15-man kill team waiting for him uh, inside that consulate. They bring him up to media room in the consulate, which was upstairs next to the director general's office. And if you know the layout of the consulate, this is kind of an odd choice um, because if you're going to get uh, documentation or whatever, that would still be on the first floor. Um, and this media room, which looks like a conference room, was the only room uh, in the consulate where they could make a secure encrypted phone call uh, or video call to Riyadh, you know, back, back to the kingdom. So they bring him up to this media room and within about uh, two minutes of him entering that consulate, maybe three minutes at most, he is uh, being murdered and uh, just a, a horrific, uh, incredibly uh, awful, brutal murder. They're literally uh, injecting him with embalming agents as Jesus. they're strangling him. Jesus, and I thought they were injecting him with some kind of, you know, something that put him to sleep or something. No? Uh, embalming fluid? Apparently there was, uh, there was some of that too. But, you know, right after uh, he, he died. They suffocate him, right? That's Yeah, they, 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 they suffocate him. They put a bag over his head. Uh, and they suffocate him, and it's a and it's a real struggle. Uh, and as they're suffocating him, apparently they are also injecting him with uh, with blood coagulants um, because oh, uh, the plan Jesus is to Christ. immediately cut him up and 
and if his and if his heart's still beating, you know the coagulants will will spread uh, through his body quicker. So you know he just meets a, a horrific uh, death right after they murder him. They dismember his body uh, with a bone saw into pieces. It, uh, horrific, horrific, horrific. Now, of course, he doesn't leave <laughs> the building except they actually put plastic down and packages by we'll talk about how they dispose of the body but they lie right away of course saying that he left right and eventually they say oh he died in a fight or something <laughs> and eventually they okay he was murdered and but the the crown prince didn't order this and they have a trial and i guess it's a show trial and some of them are convicted it might saying that kind right? of I yeah i mean they you know the the, the 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 long the long and short of it is they is they deny over the next two weeks that anything had happened to jamal and essentially what what the lo- world comes to learn during this time because of turkey's investigation uh and because of you know the audio and all the closed captioned security surveillance footage that they were able to put together all over Istanbul, Turkey was able to to paint a, an open and closed case. They had the surveillance footage of his kill team entering in through you know airport security. A lot of it uh, uh, at a private uh, uh, at, at a private airport. They had all the audio of his murder from the media room. And they essentially went back to Saudi Arabia and said, hey, guys, um, you're going to confess or, or we're going to confess for you. And Saudi Arabia said, yeah, whatever. You don't have anything. And a Saudi delegation came to Istanbul and they played them the audio. They showed them the surveillance footage and they said, OK, you're going to confess. And Saudi Arabia finally confessed. Uh, albeit the story was never to this day that it was a intentional operation and that they planned to kill him. The story is still that they had hoped uh, that he was going to come back. And when he refused to come back, one guy made a decision and he shouldn't have made that decision. And, uh, and they weren't planning to kill him, but they killed him and dismembered him and well, there, there is on the audio someone saying the f- sacrificial animal has arrived. That's correct. I mean, we know there was an intention to kill him, but they say there wasn't before he arrived. I think what what Saudi Arabia's game has been, you know, which is, you know, you, you get this the same thing out of Putin or, you know, or any one of these places. I mean, not really that shocking or surprising. I mean, I think I think their game has been, you know, to just go oh it was it was an accident yeah that's why you have the bone saw ready and the plastic bags yeah right um because you just might accidentally kill and dismember someone yeah that that's suspicious a little bit but you know i guess you can make the argument that the bone saw was there just in case well just in case they had just in case you need a sacrificial animal come in yeah let's talk about what he was writing about while he was writing for the Post. He was critical of the regime, obviously. That's why they killed him. He was critical about the war in Yemen. 
Yes, I mean, when you go back, and this was one of the the major reasons why I wanted to make The Dissident, uh, that I wanted to make this film. I had come out of of doing uh, Icarus, my my previous film, uh, which had exposed Russia's state-sponsored doping operation. It was a decades-long scandal that cheated basically every athlete in the world who competed against Russia uh, out of medals and prizes. And I was trying to figure out what that next story was going to be. And here the murder of Jamal happens. And as I'm reading it, you know, you have a journalist, a Washington Post journalist, who was advocating for human rights in his country, freedom of press, freedom of speech, supportive of of the crown of a royal family uh, of the kingdom, but also coming from a Western perspective, a guy who had been spending his life back and forth to the West believing that there could be a better way, that you didn't need to have a authoritarian, autocratic dictatorship where you're repressing every freedom to rule a country uh, well. And so as Crown Prince, you know, Mohammed bin Salman rises to power, uh, on one hand, he's making reforms that to the Western world look like it's positive, granting women the right to drive, for example. And on the other hand, He's basically making it that anybody, and I mean anybody, who has an opinion against him or doesn't share a positive opinion about him uh, is being arrested, thrown in jail, put on mock trials, uh, tortured, beheaded. And when I say not in support of him, they basically went around and and anybody who was famous or well-known in Saudi Arabia, if they didn't take to their social media platforms or their outlets uh, supporting Mohammed bin Salman, they would find themselves, you know, interrogated and arrested and said, hey, here's what you need to do. So silence was not enough. You had to, you had to be, you know, verbally writing, whatever, communicating your support for the crown prince. Khashoggi decides that he's not going to do this. Uh, He goes to Washington and what he's basically writing about, if you go back into his Washington Post columns and, and read what he was writing about that year, is that he believed that the U.S.-Saudi relationship, especially with Donald Trump, uh, was not a healthy relationship. So he was critical of Donald Trump. He believed that Mohammed bin Salman was essentially milking the country for its resources um, and that there needed to be a larger trickle down of wealth. He believed that women uh, should have rights in the country. uh, And he believed that people should be able to, uh, to express their opinion without the fear of being locked up and thrown in a jail. These are all things that I think all of us in in the United States or in the West take for granted. The idea that we can, you know, whatever, say, of course, uh, of course, I I don't like Joe Biden. And that doesn't mean you're going to be arrested, thrown into a jail and sit uh, without charges. And so this was what uh, uh, Jamal was writing about. And at the same time, Jamal comes to understand the power of social media, of Twitter. And I, I think we think of Twitter as a platform to go on and share an idea or share a rant or disseminate false information or whatever you want to call it. But we don't view it as, um, as a platform for control, for actual taking control. And what the Saudis learned during the Arab Spring is that the Arab Spring happened because of Twitter. Millions and millions, tens of millions of people around that region 
were able to take onto Twitter, create false accounts, and find ways to revolt and organize. And so they started to understand the power of that, of that platform. And in a country like Saudi Arabia, where you have an authoritarian state, um, where people are not able to communicate freely, eight out of 10 people in Saudi Arabia are using Twitter because Twitter became essentially the parliament uh, of the country because you can go on there and create accounts under different names and share ideas and thoughts anonymously. And Jamal's Twitter, and he's got 2 million followers at the time, is being suppressed every single time he puts out a tweet. All of a sudden, you have thousands of comments on his Twitter feed that he's a traitor, that he should, you know, that he's the scum of the earth, that his country hates him. And what he learns um, is that these tweets against him and comments are not real, that it's actually the Saudi government that has hired thousands of people to sit into rooms uh, to create false tweets and narratives on Twitter that basically makes Mohammed bin Salman rise to the top and look like he's, you know, perfect um, while suppressing any other opinion against him on Twitter. And so Jamal and Omar Abdulaziz start working on a plan called the Bees Army to combat the Saudi flies on Twitter. And they hack Omar's phone using Israeli cybersecurity software, the Saudis do, they hacked Jamal's phone using the same Israeli cybersecurity Pegasus software. And uh, it's arguably this reason and what he was writing in the Washington Post, the understanding that he was helping to fund an operation to reclaim freedom of speech in Saudi Arabia on Twitter and social media on top of his writings in a Western newspaper. Yeah, that were not supportive of Mohammed bin Salman and Trump. Um, I think these two key factors led to, uh, to his murder. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Brian Fogel, producer of The Dissident, a film about the life and murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, um, let's, let's talk about the uh, calculus of uh, U.S. foreign policy, uh, Trump versus Biden. We obviously understand that Trump didn't do anything <laughs> and just wanted to continue arms sales. That's actually what Trump said, right? It was 
we, we get billions in, in arms sales to them. We're not going to, I'm not going to rock any boats. Correct. That doesn't sound like Joe Biden. Um, what is your take on his calculus in terms of not being more punitive toward, um, toward the crown prince and toward Saudi Arabia? You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. As Biden came into office and someone like myself, who had obviously been following this story, you know, so closely, there was a real, I guess, hope. You, you can call it hope. Um, th there was a real belief because Biden also campaigned and has spoken publicly so many times on, you know, if I'm president, I, I plan to reassess the U.S.-Saudi relationship on the anniversary of Jamal's, uh, second anniversary of Jamal's uh, murder back in October of uh, 2020. Uh, you know, he even sent out a statement with the hashtag justice for Jamal. So, you know, he was uh, part of his platform was I'm going to uh, reassess the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And he releases this report that lays out uh, the CIA report, uh, lays out saying that Mohammed bin Salman ordered the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And at the same time, he declines to take any sanctions, any actions, any punishment while seeking the punishment uh, for the kill team, the guys working for him. And so I think I think what you know what you have. I mean, just in a very you know cut and dry, easy understanding of, of you know of politics, is that Biden made a decision that to actually punish or impose sanctions um, was not probably in the best business interests uh, of the U.S. and uh, uh, and declined to do so. There, there also might be geopolitical calculus at, at play here, just in terms of uh, the Saudis are the enemy of Iran, and the enemy of our enemy is our friend, which brings us to Yemen and uh, the travesty there. You know, I led an effort early on that with uh, an odd coalition, Rand Paul and uh, Chris Murphy and and I uh, to stop arms sales to the Saudis for the weapons that they were using in Yemen. Um, that was not successful. It did finally pass later, um, but it was vetoed by Trump. But that is just a humanitarian travesty and disaster. And that, again, is a, very much about the Iran-Saudi their rivalry, shall we say, in the in the region. It's, uh, I mean, th this is a very, very complicated uh, geopolitical question, but it's kind of heartbreaking. I think where Biden has been effective, at least right now, or what I'm hearing is in curtailing the war in Yemen. You know, he he did veto the last $500 million worth of weapon sales that Trump tried to pass through uh, on his way out. You know, uh, I, I guess the talks in Washington is that, you know, there is no more support for the war in Yemen. And I think probably part of his negotiating tactics of not issuing sanctions or going after the crown prince uh, and the murder of Khashoggi was probably, who knows, but... Uh, probably some sort of um, 
backdoor agreement, you know, regarding uh, the war in Yemen. When you talk about the political nature of this, if you've followed any of the kind of human rights abuse stories in Saudi Arabia, uh, about four years ago, they arrested a female activist. Her name was, uh, her name is uh, Lujain al-Hatul. Lujain at the time was, I believe, 28 years old came from a pretty, uh, you know, well, well thought of upper class Saudi uh, family and started to write and take to the streets uh, for women's rights in the country, that women should have a right to vote, that women uh, should not be under the guardian system, um, which in Saudi Arabia, no woman can leave the home uh, alone by herself uh, without the permission of an 18-year-old male guardian uh, in the home. So literally, once your son becomes 18 years old, he has the permission to decide whether his mother can leave the house. I mean, and is it, this is enforced? Up. I don't know the details, but apparently there's like an app on the phone and there's like a letter and that, you know, a woman, if she's stopped, needs to basically show that she has been granted permission uh, by a male over the age of 18 uh, in her house uh, to be out and about. Boy, that is so Taliban, isn't it? Yes, it's nutty. So, yeah. you know, so, so Lujain is, is, is writing against this and she's arrested and she sits in a jail uh, for three years, basically, you know, with all these, uh, I mean, you can read millions of things of her on, on the internet, uh, you know, with all these false charges and they then put her on trial uh, last year and they convict her and she's supposed to spend another six years in prison because she had served three of her term. So she's going to spend another six years in prison. And then about a week, two weeks before Biden uh, releases the intelligence report, uh, Saudi Arabia suddenly releases Lujan al-Hatul. Uh, so clearly this was a, uh, an olive branch to the Biden administration. And clearly there was some sort of whatever was going on that they released Lujain because a month earlier they had sentenced her to another uh, six years. Man, oh man. Uh, yeah, I think uh, there's stuff we, we don't know, but at least so she was released and we don't know exactly what's going on <laughs> behind the scenes, I, I suspect. Well, look, I mean, you're obviously, uh, you know, your years in politics. Um, it always, it felt like to me um, in the time that I spent, you know, and I went to Washington with Hatija, Jamal's fiance, and it, and we met with a number of senators and congressmen and uh, and even Nancy Pelosi and, and Adam Schiff and Mark Warner. And, Chairs of the intelligence committees. That's correct. And everybody, you know, on the surface was like, this is awful. We got to do something about it. Um, we have to, you know, really do something about it. But um, somewhere along the, we have to do something about it and actually doing something about it. Um, I think a lot of politics and, uh, and defense and, you know, and allies in the region, this, that, and the other uh, step in the way of, taking responsibility for human rights abuses such as this horrific murder or such as, you know, what's going on to countless others uh, in the kingdom. Yeah. Well, and, and again, that's 
the geopolitics of this. There's a moment in the movie that I want to ask you about, which is there's some um, uh, convening of some uh, hearing about all this, and the, his fiance testifies, and she's about to speak, and the Saudi officials leave. That's right. She was. Um, that, that just was appalling. Yeah, so Agnes Calamard, who was the UN, the United Nations Special Rapporteur, to investigate the murder. Once she was done with her report, uh, goes to testify in front of the United Nations Human Rights uh, Council. And for those of your listeners who may or not know this, um, not only did the United States uh, withdraw itself under Trump from the United Nations Human Rights Committee, uh, which was kind of unreal to be there and see that the United States, uh, its desk was empty. Saudi Arabia sits on this, uh, on this committee. And so Agnes goes to deliver her report to the committee on the murder of Jamal. Uh, after she does, Hatija Jengez, uh, Jamal's fiance. Uh, speaks asking for justice. And as she's speaking, uh, the two Saudi delegates literally stand up, pack their bags and leave a room. Uh, one of the most rudest, you know, uh, jaw dropping moments I've, I've ever seen as, as a filmmaker, somebody, you know, uh, uh, you know, as a documentarian uh, to see this, you know, complete disrespect in this situation but also to understand that the United Nations at that level in their human rights committee basically has no power to do anything. Their, their role is basically to observe and report. And after Agnes Calamard's findings, that's a, a very, very thorough investigation, the Secretary General and the Security Council and all that of the UN that could have done something all declined to take any action uh, because it wasn't in the best interests of the G20. You know, so understanding that the United Nations and even that scene that you see in the film where, you know, this scathing report is delivered and the Saudis stand up and walk out of the room as, as Hatija is speaking, um, was largely ceremonial. Um, there wasn't really any action uh, that was going to be taken or could be taken. Uh, and the UN uh, you know, General Assembly and Security Council um, declined to to take up the investigation. But that moment in the film is is really heartbreaking because they walk out on the fiance of this guy who, whether or not they admit that the Crown Prince ordered this or not, the lack of respect was jaw-dropping, as you say, and heartbreaking and disgusting. And being with Atija during that time where I spent uh, the greater part of a year with her, traveling all over the world as she spoke to European Parliament, as she spoke in the UK, as she spoke in the UN, as she went to Washington, and, uh, you know, it was heartbreaking uh, to see a murder so cut and dry, to see something of, of this horrific nature and realize that money and power allows you to get away with, with crimes such as this and in, uh, in the world that we're living in.
One thing I want to say about the film that I, I really want to emphasize to the audience, to, to our listeners, is that you get a sense of this guy, of Khashoggi, and you get a sense of a terrific guy, and and a guy with a lovely man, and a guy with a brilliant man, and a guy with a sense of humor, and a guy who the most admirable kind of guy, but someone who clearly was like a good friend and clearly a guy that people really, who knew him, really liked a real stand-up guy. I mean, of course, you're a stand-up guy to leave your country to be a dissident. But, I mean, I'm talking about the footage you have of him where you see him just talking with with folks, with friends, with he just seemed like a lovely, lovely man. I I, I didn't get to meet Jamal, and one of the, the main uh, determining factors of whether or not I was going to go spend the next you know two plus years of my life, you know, dedicated to making this film and its subsequent um, promotion, etc., was. Did I feel that I would have liked Jamal? Mm-hmm. And I could understand everywhere that, I yeah. came across, the answer was yes. And you know, and they say that that a you know a man is known by the friends he keeps. And certainly, each person that I met uh, along this journey that knew Jamal, that had worked with Jamal, that was friends with Jamal, not only did they have a love for him, I liked them. And so I went, wait, I, mm-hmm. uh, his, his circle of friends is all people that I would find myself wanting to be friends with or find myself uh, wanting to have an interesting conversation with or who were uh, intellectually uh, evolved, who were outside of the norm of what you might think of uh, for someone in that region or philosophically, et cetera. And um and certainly, um, not only did I find that over and over again, um, it was it was across the board. And then, as I read Jamal's writings, um, I said to myself, "Is this, this is someone uh, I would have I uh, I would have liked? I, I could have seen myself being friends with." Well, someone you'd really be honored to be a friend with because the, the, his integrity. Uh, his courage, his courage. I mean, the sacrifice he made, and also the commitment to his principles and to democracy and to his to his country. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing guy. Well, thank you uh, so much, Brian, and congratulations on on the film. I recommend it to anyone. Uh, it's not funny, and we'll say that. No, but um, you know, we uh, for those of your listeners that. Um, uh, might have seen Icarus, the dissident. Uh, we really, we really crafted it to hopefully feel like a, like a scripted feature thriller, like a big, born identity esque thriller. Except, uh, except it's all true. There is definitely that feeling in the film. It feels like exactly that. It's a, it is a thriller, but I guess we gave away the ending. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Al. 
Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.